So this is uh, John down here. You're about to listen to a conversation that I recorded with Evan Selinger and Brett Frischman about their book, Reengineering Humanity. So Evan and Brett have both been former guests on the podcast. Uh, Evan is a professor of philosophy at the Rochester Institute of Technology and does a lot of work on the ethics of technology, whereas Brett is a professor-in-law at uh, Villanova University, and he's done a lot of work on knowledge commons in the background. So this book is a joint effort by the pair of them, looking at the ways in which modern techno-social engineering is affecting our shared humanity. We have a very long conversation about the book. We cover a lot of ground, looking at some of the rich ideas within the book. We only really scratch the surface, which is something that I comment on towards the end. Uh, nevertheless, I think there's you know, a lot of useful ideas in this book for anyone who is interested in the way in which technology is affecting our lives in the present era, and I would definitely recommend checking it out. Just on a personal note, though, I wanted to point out the obvious. This is the first podcast that I've released in a couple of months. Uh, I've taken a break largely for personal reasons, many of which are documented on the my blog itself, for those of you who are interested. Um, but hopefully going to get back into a more regular schedule of podcasts over the next few months. So without further ado, I'm just going to hand you over to the conversation that I had with Evan and Brett. Okay, so this is a really rich and interesting book. There's a lot of detail to it. Nevertheless, I think there's like a key central thesis within it, which is that contemporary techno-social engineering is or might be or could be turning us into simple machines. That's how I interpret the main argument of the book. There's a lot going on there, so maybe we could break down the, the thesis into its component parts. What do you mean by techno-social engineering? Brett, you want to take that? Sure. Um, the, uh, the idea behind techno-social engineering for us was um, we're using it as a uh, way to talk about um, both technology and social institutions, human-made tools uh, that impact how we think, how we behave, how we interact with each other. And so the, the term is meant to capture. It's, it is pretty broad. And when we were trying to think about how to describe the kinds of tools and processes we were interested in uh, examining in the book, um, we went through a litany of different you know, different words and ideas and concepts and ended up with techno-social engineering because it seemed to sort of capture things as wide-ranging as nudging and is is sort of innocuous as influence or making or using. The only thing I would add, if it helps, is, you know, if you look at the way that technology has been talked about in a number of academic disciplines over the years, there's been a lot of skepticism about trying to analyze something like the essence of technology because of the way that social norms and social practices are inextricably bound with how technologies get used. I mean, so there's a lot of talk in the literatures about socio-technical systems. And we were influenced by that. We, we didn't want to make the mistake of talking about the logic of technology per se. We wanted to really emphasize the inextricable connection between social norms, social decision-making, and technological affordances. So that's why we use, I mean, it's a bit jargony, but it's probably the most accurate word is to talk about techno-social. And engineering, there are so many synonyms that we could have pursued 
but at a real visceral level, because our concerns are about the ways in which these techno-social systems are not only impacting how we think and perceive and how we act, but also fundamentally who we take ourselves to be and who others view us as and how we look at them, engineering seemed to be, of all the linguistic possibilities, the most apt to capture the fully transformative sets of concerns that we have. But is it fair to say that the book is very much motivated or influenced by current kind of technological developments, particularly around you know, the digital economy, digital networks, um, artificial intelligence, robotics? Is that that's kind of the major motivation, or am I misinterpreting no, no. what's reading it? No, uh, 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 oh, John, uh, absolutely. I, I was just trying to respond to your question about the, the terminology. If I understand it, one of the points here is that, you know, technology by itself, uh, you know, you can't analyze it purely as a, an abstract entity or set of objects independent of the culture or society in which it's located. And so the value of talking about techno-social engineering is that you appreciate that kind of feedback loop between social norms and technology and how it gets used. And we don't lose sight of the fact that technologies take on meaning in a certain social context. I think that's right. But I, I would I would caution against, I mean, I think what motivates a lot of the examples in the book are digital technology examples in part because all of the list all in the list that you described ai robotics etc but we're just as interested in the ideas in the book applied just as well to social engineering uh, that doesn't rely on digital technologies at all um, and so the for example i mean so we talk a bit about it in the book about the use of behavioral data to affect choice architectures to nudge human beings in, in different, various ways, for good, for ill, is, is beside the point, but that certainly fall, nudging, for example, which doesn't rely on digital technology per se, uh, is equally within the definition of techno-social engineering um, as the examples that rely on the use of digital tech. Uh, yeah, just to jump in on that, I think that, that that's a really great way of putting it. We, we weren't trying to write a book that only speaks to the moment as Brett pointed out, there's a lot of historical analysis, both in terms of the history of tool use and even at a biological level, like what the relationship is between our um, evolutionary tendencies and our tool use over time. On the other hand, we didn't want to write a book that was just about technology theory with the idea that people could sort of wrap their heads around it and then apply as they see fit. We want to do the best that we can to use the tools that we developed to talk about the world that we're inhabiting and the world that uh, seems to be on the short-term horizon, and then possible worlds that are being built because of the trajectories that we're seeing. So a lot of the examples are, are fairly both uh, contemporary, and there's a lot of thought experiments about possible future developments. And so we try to do that juggling act between you know, saying something fundamental that would have uh, widespread applicability, but really writing a book that if you're an engineer or a computer scientist or a policymaker, and you're trying to figure out sort of how to get a finger on the pulse of where things are, what some of the big decisions are going to be, and how to think through some of the consequences of making certain types of decisions, we wanted the book to 
speak to that very specifically as well. Okay. Um, again, as I said, the, said it out at the start, the, the central thesis of the book is that contemporary trends in techno-social engineering threaten our humanity because they maybe are, could be, like, I don't know how you want to express it exactly, turning us into simple machines. So maybe you could flesh out that idea. What do you mean by turning us into simple machines? It, I mean, just to set it up at the outset, it seems to me that the the modifier simple could be doing a lot of work there. So, Yeah, let, let me take a stab at this, and then, Evan, I know sure. you'll j- jump in right after, but the, I think you've... It's not exact. So I think this, your statement of the thesis isn't quite precise. So I just want to sort of back up. Um, so our claim or our concern is not that contemporary techno social engineering is turning us into simple machines, right? So the, 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 the idea is contemporary techno social engineering may be threatening. We may be on a path where we're the deployment of various techno social engineering tools um, through in in many different environments, in many different contexts of our lives, is affecting who we are and who we can be and who our children and future generations can be, and in that sense, threatening humanity, uh, which is a discussion we get into quite a bit at the end of the book. And the, the dimensions along which humanity may be threatened by techno-social engineering tools of the sort we discuss um, is various human capabilities ma- are what matter about being human. The things about being human that matter and different people will maybe prioritize different capabilities or different aspects of humanity that they think matter more or less than others, and that's okay. But the, it's those aspects or capabilities of humanity that are, that are under threat, right? The simple machine idea is really about creating a baseline against which to identify and then possibly evaluate uh, changes along those various dimensions or of, of, of human capabilities. Um, so if one thinks that, let's just make one of the examples we talk about, like common sense, right? Something, it's important, to, uh, it's an important aspect of being human is that we have this capability to generate, engage in, and use common sense. Some might disagree and think that's not actually essential. That that's a, a debate we can have. But common sense, the if if human beings lacked common sense, right, we might be able to use we may be able to identify when that occurs in a particular context by evaluating humans by reference to a simple machine as a baseline. So it's not really a human or claim again and again is not that human beings are simple machines or or will be simple machines. Um, it's that Human, we may behave like, or seem like, or be observed to be to be like simple machines with respect to some capability that matters. Um, and then the question is how to how to evaluate whether that capability matters and what is causing that capability to be threatened or be at risk. I'll just add uh, or emphasize a few things. I think that Brett pointed out that um, I really want to highlight. A way to misunderstand the book is to think that the book is making claims that there are human beings and there are machines and we're trying to uh, make a causal claim and saying that if you look at how things are right now, these beings called human beings are fundamentally changing right before our eyes into this other thing called machines and this process uh, absolutely is just going to be revving up and getting worse over time. 
instead, the book is fundamentally uh, about environments. When we talk about techno-social engineering, we're talking about how people behave in environments that are designed in specific ways. So what the book is really asking is, are there environments that are being designed where human beings end up uh, being choreographed or programmed or engineered in those environments to behave in specific ways where we could look at that behavior, compare that behavior to a simple machine, which in our analysis, it's a bit of an idealized construct. What we didn't want to do, it's easier to talk about the negative at first and then get to the positive. What we didn't want to do is make any ontological claims that human beings have these definitive set of characteristics and we can demarcate human beings from machines by saying that machines don't have these characteristics. And then we could figure out what overlaps and doesn't overlap in a Venn diagram, et cetera. We have no idea how AI will advance over time. We're, we're, we're not in the game of prognosticating about the limits or potential of AI. I mean, that, that would be a, a kind of empirical bet that's outside the scope of, of what we're dealing with. So to avoid people saying, oh, you're basically saying that uh, if we look at how AI is going to go, it's going to advance in a particular way, which will bring it closer to or further apart from human beings. We're saying our argument has nothing to do with how far AI will go relative to its ontological status compared to ours. The question becomes, as we design ever smarter environments, environments that have uh, more and more effective AI built into them, and that these environments are sort of big data driven and fueled by machine learning and predictive analytics, the question becomes, how does our behavior function in those environments? And the smarter the AI gets in those environments, does that have a particular kind of adverse impact on our autonomy, our capacities for deliberation, various other sorts of skills and characteristics that we outline in a book. And those could be analyzed against, at least as a sort of idealized comparison, a baseline of something that we call a simple machine. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of things I could ask, but I think it would probably just be better if we had a concrete example of, of a techno-social engineering system environment that you think might be programming us or turning us into or uh, a simple machine in that environment. So I, I appreciate that the analysis here is situational and contextual. You're not making a claim that we're reprogramming human biology and completely changing our ontological essence if we have such a thing. But can you give an example of a situation or context in which we are perhaps on the borderline of becoming a simple machine? You, Brett, you want to talk about contracting? I think that's very relatable. It's politically powerful, and um, I, I think it really gets to the point here. Yeah, I think I think the 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 what the the example that resonates with people because it's it's an experience most of us have pretty regularly is is the electronic contracting. Uh, you know, what do you what do you do when you see an I agree? Uh, button on a web page that you're visiting uh, to to take a look at some content, and the response of you know most people most of the time, although not always, uh, is I click it, right? I, I respond automatically, habitually, and often people's responses and and you know of course I do that. Um, what else am I going to do? You know, it's a take it or leave it contract or a contract of adhesion. There's no real other option. It's you know, click I agree and move to the content you're 
it's a minor speed bump to get to the the destination and you know it is it's perfectly rational uh, in that context that all of us act you know more or less you know automatically and just click i agree and, and proceed um and then what's interesting about the the scenario of online contracting or electronic contracting um is how you know the the interface is designed to stimulate a rather automatic response. Um, it could certainly be designed differently. Uh, in and so in the particular the context of a particular interaction or transaction, um, there are a variety of ways one might design stimulus such that it got a response, which was to stop and think or deliberate uh, or to have some. Uh, contextual understanding of the person or the company with whom you're interacting and forming a, a meaningful legal relationship, but you know that's not efficient. And so, in a in a in a world in which, uh, or in a context in which, minimizing transaction costs and getting sort of an efficient, moving people efficiently through the transaction, speed bumps of that sort are are not really worked much into the design. What's kind of interesting about the electronic contracting sort of example is that, you know, something that in the micro context, every individual encounter seems quite innocuous, incrementally cost benefit justified to just click I agree. And it perfect it makes sense from both the service provider and the customer standpoint that we just minimize the transaction costs and move someone through the transaction automatically. Uh, what's interesting is what is the impact of having to, you know, having an an, uh, an online environment that's populated, governed by this particular form of interface, right? This particular kind of transaction, because we encounter it, you know, dozens, hundreds of times a year, um, and uh, so we create these, automatically create these written agreements written binding uh, written agreements with a whole host of different companies, businesses, websites. And at some point, even if you did want to stop and think about which contract is worth deliberating and stopping and thinking about, and, and maybe sort of, maybe I will leave, you know, walk away from this one. It's hard to know which, which one is worth it given the steady stream uh, of contracts we encounter. Yeah. So, I mean, the example is useful for a number of reasons because it's a phenomenon that most people have encountered and encounter just very frequently online is that they have to click agree to a set of terms and conditions or uh, you know click on some button that completes a transaction and they signal that they've agreed to the terms and conditions without ever reading them or understanding them or deliberating about them. So, so this also reveals, I think, what is a core part of your understanding or definition of a simple machine then is that it, it's, it's a simple machine is something that doesn't really engage in any higher executive functions like deliberation, evaluation, it just does things automatically. A stimulus arises like a button on a screen and they just click, yes, I agree, without deeper thought. Is that That's basically the idea. With that example, sure, yeah. yeah it's it's why it resonates so well. Is it, it, um, you behave like a perfectly rational stimulus response machine uh, by, by design. So it's a good, ex it's a decent example of where the techno-social environment, both the technical design of the human-computer interface of the electronic contracting interface, plus the social aspect of the legal environment that supports that technical architecture, right? That, so the techno-social engineering is that combination of law and technology uh, and design. And, but it's also an interesting example because, and this is a, 
hypothesis that we offer in the book. We don't claim that we've done the empirical testing yet. In fact, we're sort of thinking about that as future work and work to collaborate with others on. Um, but you know, the, the hypothesis is that it actually has, it may program behavior over time. So repeat engagement with this particular kind of stimulus under conditions in which the only rational thing to do is to click may very well increase the propensity to just click when you encounter the same stimulus in future, uh, in future contexts, right? And even if those contexts change, so if you move from a website to a, an app, you're downloading on your phone and you move from there to a smart TV that you're installing in your living room at home, those contexts are very different. The relationships that you're forming with the service providers and third parties lurking in the background are very different. Um, you might think that the trade-offs, the, you know, the privacy trade-offs, the uh, economic trade-offs uh, are different potentially across those three different types of context and you can we can add a fourth which would be you know iot and the deployment of you know all kinds of other devices in different contexts where you have a, a simple click through would be a useful way to um uh have that sa you know same sort of uh transaction create a legal arrangement um and the point is that the, across all those different contexts the trade-offs are different the relationships are different yet the behavior as far as we can tell more or less seems to be the same um, so it seems to also uh, be an example that at least highlights or lets people see how um, it's not just about predictable automatic responses through the techno-social engineering of a particular uh, situation, but it's also potentially a programmable a situation where we're, we, we as human beings interacting with the interface repeatedly can be programmed or conditioned or habituated to sort of behaving a certain way. And that... If that holds, and, and is, if we're successful in the book in getting this across, as just an example, I think there's a lot other examples that have similar features, then maybe we can get across the idea of um, how habituation, conditioning uh, can work across techno-social environments as people sort of encounter the same kinds of stimuli across different places. Just, just to add a, really quickly, I think... Brett said, Brett's response highlighted, I think, three really essential ingredients with that particular example. And I just want to make sure that they're, uh, for the people who are listening, that these ingredients are really popping out. The first one I would just say is externalities. Um, I'm not sure Brett used the word, but the way he talked about it absolutely zeroes in on our concern about externalities. It isn't as if there are it isn't as if people aren't aware of how they behave when they engage with online contracting. I mean, to the contrary, it's such a pervasive experience that's what makes our example, we believe, you know, resonate. There's tons of scholarship on this. There's tons of policy work being done on this. But the scholarship, particularly in the law community and the policy work, it isn't focused on the issue of the implications for engaging over and over again, time after time after time with this contracting regime on our habits. In other words, there absolutely is concern about people getting into certain arrangements where a meeting of the minds doesn't take place or where the potential for exploitation can occur or where you know, fine-grained or even you know, more blunt options are completely curtailed. 
And as we point out, those are all really important fights that have to be uh, taking place now. Without those fights, entities like corporations are able to leverage asymmetric understanding in ways that give them massive amounts of power. But our analysis is complementary to that by pointing out that if the fight is simply about trying to give corporations a little less power or empower consumers in a particular way, it's easy to lose sight of how these contracts aren't just about forming relationships with the entities that the contracts legalize. It's the very structure of the contract formation. And contracts in particular, of all the kinds of examples we could give, are something that really should be screaming out because you know, the spirit of a contract, at least once upon a time, involved a certain type of meeting of the minds. I mean, it was supposed to be a paradigmatic example where autonomy can be present. This isn't just one example amongst many. And the way that the legal regime has evolved to allow these contracting activities to not be undermining the law or playing loose and fast with the law, but to actually be completely legally compliant, it shows this very interesting confluence between online design, the way that these contracts are designed to appear to us, and a legal regime that allows that to function. And so without paying attention to the habits that, I mean, in a kind of causal way, that these things can form, we lose sight of sort of uh, broader connections amongst environments. In other words, the fight for consumer privacy is part of a larger fight, and we lose sight of the larger fight if we only focus on, well, what's the problem with the contract with respect to the negotiation process? Evan, let me just yeah. pause you for one second, because I, I, I can already hear certain contract scholars ready to sort of jump on, uh, jump on you, and I just want to make, I want to sort of preempt their attack, in a sense. One of the things that's also really important about what Evan just said in the example is, it, it ties back to your point earlier, John, about whether the book is just about digital tech. Um, is the electronic contracting example and everything that Evan just said also connects what's happening today with what's happened throughout the 20th century with the rise of mass market standardized contracts. So the meeting of the minds in contract law has often been held out as like this imaginary you know, ideal, um, but that's long since been lost as we moved into a modern economy of mass market standardized contracts in the offline world. So much of what Evan and I, Evan and I have to say about the online electronic contracting environment is an extension of what was already sort of starting to, you know, it had been happening in, the, in, in a sense in the offline world. And so there's a certain, and this is, this is true of lots of our examples, like there's sort of a continued, a continuity that goes all the way back to sort of Taylorism in the early 20th century to what we're seeing today. The, the only thing I was just going to end by saying, which is, I mean, it's, it's perfectly a, a great segue after what you just said, is it's not just the historical continuity. I mean, we do make the argument that it seems like our exposure to uh, the amount of contracts is proliferating because of the way that they're, uh, they're, they're, they're expanding. And so it is on the one hand a continuation, but on the other hand, we do seem to be facing and dealing with more and more. I mean, it's almost like contracts are expediting and becoming trivialized. They're, 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 they're everywhere. 
the, the frequency yeah. and the speed seems to be intensifying. And this relates to the third point that I want to emphasize, which is um, the logic of creep. We, we talk a lot about this in the book. Uh, we talk about privacy creep. We talk about surveillance creep and techno-social engineering creep. And that's what's hard to see when you don't look at the impacts on our habits. When the habits become an externality that's outside of the purview of your analysis, it becomes harder to appreciate how the way that we're situated with respect to certain types of environments where here we might become ever more accustomed in a kind of uh, intensifying formation to see it, click it, see it, click it. And this expands from then the internet to the internet of things. The question becomes, how do, how, how do these later formations uh, capitalize on and become parasitic upon the dispositions that we've already developed? So the easier it is to habituate people to a particular way of being and turn something that might have once upon a time seemed like uh, it would be objectionable or even unimaginable, when you turn that into the new normal, it becomes easier to keep shifting in scale and scope the way that those practices happen. And, and that's why we want to focus on this question of techno-social engineering at the level of humanity rather than just saying, why is a contract bad for a citizen or a consumer, even though we are worried about citizens and consumers? Yeah, I mean, if we could probably spend most of our time discussing even just the contract example, but I want to try and keep the focus a little bit more general on the general thesis or idea behind the book. So I think the point here is that the online contracting environment is a good illustration of this phenomenon of techno-social engineering that's training us in a, habituating us to act like simple machines in an automatic and unreflective way. And one of the key points you make, which is implicit in everything you just said, is that this is a kind of collective action problem. How to use the analogy with the tragedy of the commons at the outset. So there's kind of a tragedy of the commons arising here, uh, in a sense that we are training ourselves, or the social environments in which we operate, techno-social environments in which we operate, are training us to become more automatic and less deliberative in our, our behavior. Maybe you could just talk about that idea a bit more. Uh, well, so, you know, I think one of the things that we try to say in terms of framing it as a collection, collective action problem is you have to look at what seems reasonable and you have to look at what seems reasonable at different scales. So, so much of what's occurring, even if we take it out of electronic contracting, let's just go with a more basic example that, you know, everyone can relate to as well. Let's think about people being worried about, um, you know, uh, social media. So ever since the Cambridge Analytica scandal, there was the delete Facebook movement and questions were raised about whether or not that would be efficacious at all. And some of the skepticism was about the fact that Facebook owns so many other companies. Uh, so much of the skepticism were about uh, what are the other market alternatives that are possible and whether any viable ones exist especially due to network effects, right? For another social network to actually work, it would have to be a network. It would have to be a place where you'd be able to engage with the people you can currently engage with. But, you know, a, a more fundamental question would be something like, many of us might feel very upset about the kinds of control that companies like Facebook have over us, but it still feels like, well, you know, individually, we don't want to give up on all of the things that using social media provides. There are certain types of professional benefits and there are social benefits. I mean, in fact, 
you know, if you weren't on social media at this point, it, it would almost seem like you were antisocial or asocial, right? The norms have shifted so much that it would be out of the ordinary to not be a participant. So nobody, you know, or LinkedIn would be, you know, maybe an even stronger example. If you're in a professional world, it might seem like you'd be putting yourself at a serious career disadvantage to say, well, I, I just don't want to participate in, in LinkedIn. So everybody at an individual level has a rational incentive to want to get the most out of these systems and hope that the downsides are taken care of by somebody else. Right? Maybe some magic policymaker somewhere will wave a wand and make everything go away, but people don't want to change their individual behavior because of the benefits. And this is what makes it a collective action problem until it's sort of understood that the scale of this is going to require large-scale decision-making for people to collectively realize that what might be in our short-term individual interest much like if you go back to the traditional, you know, um, allegory that Garrett Hardin offered of the tragedy of the commons, eventually, you know, there, there are no sheep uh, on the pasture. So that, that's part of the problem that we're trying to identify as a collective action problem. And one of the additional benefits, we think, of talking about it at that level of scale is it gives a certain type of insight into how these problems arise, specifically we're trying to resist the idea that either all of these problems are imposed on us, right, as if there is never any decision making on our part at all, but nor do we want to do victim blaming as if everybody's just making really terrible decisions, which some people like to say. I mean, certain libertarians would say, yeah, you know, people are making terrible decisions. Social learning will eventually, you know, catch up with them and they'll either learn to make better decisions or they'll suffer terribly. You know, both of those stories, it's either entirely imposed or it's just about people making bad decisions. They're, they're, they're both wrong. And when you see this as a collective action problem, you begin to see that it's something that happens to us. It's something that we decide. And it's because of this gap between sort of rational short-term interests at a personal scale with some sort of implicit hope that, you know, some magic guardian somewhere will make the cost-benefit analysis work out better, but we don't want to sacrifice much to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I was actually yeah. going to ask a little bit about, you know, the, so the notion there is that individually rational decisions aggregate into something that is collectively problematic. That's the basic logic or idea behind the tragedy of the commons. And you mentioned the notion that, well, we're kind of waiting for the third party, the guardian, to step in and, and help us out. Uh, like to go back to the con contracting example, one of the things that I can't remember if you discussed this that much in that that chapter, but when I teach contracts, um, one of the things I focus on is the kind of rise of consumer welfare laws and statutes and protections in the twentieth century. You know, going from a very laissez-faire system in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds to a much more controlled system, coinciding with the rise of mass consumerism. But like, is is there is there not a danger in these kind of third party interventions as well that they undermine the kinds of capacities that you're interested in protecting and valuing, like capacities around agency, autonomy, and well, deliberation? I'll just say, well, Brett will probably say more about this because uh, he's got his own independent project on knowledge commons. But I, I would, it doesn't have to be a third party, right? Uh, here, here's a concrete example. So several years ago, uh, I wrote a piece with Woodrow Hartzog and Ari Melber, 
And this was in the it came out in the nation, and we argued for something called a people's terms of service contract. And the idea was, couldn't we just leverage contract law in a way that would actually provide better contracts for people on social media sites? So the basic idea was, what if there was, you know, and we don't we don't specify exactly how the deliberative processes would occur, but there could be deliberative processes where large scale groups of people sort of determined what an idealized contract would be and the idealized language that it would center on. And you could imagine such a thing existing where it wouldn't be imposed on companies, but companies, for example, might voluntarily adopt it in order to win over in the market people whose interests aligned with that. But that's a massive collective action problem. I mean, like, how would you get off the ground that type of deliberation, would some sort of deliberative body have more power over it than others? Would the end up result actually match the spirit? I mean, there's all kinds of questions with this because collective action problems are fundamentally difficult. But I'm just giving that as one example to show that not every collective action solution requires um, a Leviathan to come in and do the governing. You, do you want to expand on that, Brett? Uh, yeah, so that's right. Um... So when we frame it as a tragedy of the commons problem, it doesn't mean that the solution is to move away from a commons. Certainly, not that's not necessarily the case. Uh, the point of thinking about a humanity's techno-social dilemma as a collective action tragedy of the commons style problem, you guys have both sort of highlighted a bunch of the reasons. I mean, some of it has to do with incrementally cost-benefit, perfectly rational, rational sort of uh, decision cost benefit justified perfectly rational decisions by individual sheep herders or individual technology adopters or users can lead to a social dilemma. Um, but the the one of the difficulties with taking the tragedy of the commons uh, allegory and trying to think about how it would apply to the kinds of problems we're focused on it's not a perfect fit, but you have to think about what the shared resource is. So the tragedy aspect is is easy to think about, sort of, okay, well, what the tragedy is the result of um, uh, this cost incremental cost-benefit rational decisions that have external effects that affects human the, the shared resource. Well, what's the shared resource? And the shared resource that we discuss uh, quite a bit is this idea of humanity, which comes up at the end of the, uh, mostly at the end of the book, but it's this uh, set of... Um, uh, uh, shared commitments and ideals about who we are and who we can be sort of reflected in us and how those uh, those capabilities and aspects of being human uh, are at risk through techno-social engineering. The solution isn't necessarily abandoning the technology. It's not necessarily a Leviathan coming in sort of sorting it all out for us, like figuring out what contracts are best. Um, and that's that's where in the context, if you're talking about the contract example in particular, sort of, okay, well, the solutions we offer, it's in the very end of the book, in the conclusion, it's just sort of an example. Um, and we, we're not, we don't offer a complete or comprehensive set of solutions for resolving the, the electronic contracting aspect of humanity's techno-social dilemma. We talk about mitigating some of the techno-social engineering effects. Um, and so we talk about maybe there's a deliberation principle um, maybe there, maybe we need to rethink the ease with which uh, written contracts are created, 
um, through the electronic contracting interface, uh, in part because there's lots of trivial contracts that wouldn't be cost-benefit justified, except that it's so cheap to create a contract digitally through the uh, through that interface. So there's, you know, maybe you need contract to actually apply to meaningful legal relationships, um, you know. But we're we're hesitant to go too far down that road because we think it's it's important future work to do. But it it really wasn't our goal wasn't to sort of fix contract law again because we're not focused on whether these or those terms are fair for the consumer or unfair for the consumer. We think those things matter. We're trying to emphasize that it's the it's the actual it's the actual human computer interface design's impact on how we behave and how it habituates us to behave in a stimulus response fashion um, that goes completely unnoticed and untalked about. I mean, I think the the point is is well taken that like a lot of the debates that we have even around privacy or contracting focus a lot on maybe substantive harms that are done to people, like in terms of, well, the outcome is unfair to them or it negatively impacts on their well-being in some way, whereas your focus within this book is very much more on the agency-related capacities uh, that are being affected through this uh, habituation and behavioral programming of the techno-social environment. Let me just throw one more thing on the, on the humanities techno-social dilemma piece that I think Evan, when, when Evan made the moved us over to social media and he mentioned Cambridge Analytica. Like what jumped into mind for me to, to tell, to sort of emphasize here is it's also sort of death by a thousand cuts kind of story, right? So, you know, you might think that Cambridge Analytica is a really powerful example that's kind of woke, you know, everyone's uh, is like now suddenly aware uh, that, hey, Facebook has uh, had maybe sort of caused or been at the root of a bunch of problems and in Cambridge Analytica we need to deal but Cambridge Analytica is just one of thousands of companies that uh, you know third party users uh, you know that can gain access to data via Facebook the Facebook platform but it's not even just a Facebook problem Facebook is just one of many powerful techno social engineering companies that, at the platform level that are influencing beliefs and preferences and data flows and habituating both. So it's not just that Cambridge Analytica through its access to data on Facebook is able to potentially, uh, tr you know, whether they're effective or not, right? They're, they're cap they're, they're, they gain access to a platform and to data that potentially enables them to use technology and data to shape beliefs, preferences, voting patterns, whatever, right? To sort of nudge uh, people to behave in certain ways. Maybe they're not that except, uh, they're not that successful in that particular instance. Maybe others in the uh, set of uh, companies like Cambridge Analytica are more or less effective. We have no idea, right? We don't we don't have the empirical studies of what what other companies are doing and how effective they are at affecting our beliefs or our preferences or our behaviors uh, on the Facebook platform. But of course, Facebook is just one of many of those platforms. And so another thing that the the tragedy of the commons collective action problem setup is or analogy or story or framing is about is about realizing that there's many different techno-social engineering tools like Fitbit and wearable technologies, though very different in some ways, actually bear a lot of common and similar uh, techno-social engineering concerns as Facebook and 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 uh, the Cambridge Analytica story raises. 
And it's only if we think, start to think comprehensively about all of how all of these different technologies are, are interacting with and affecting who we are as human beings can we begin to diagnose the problem you know, the collective action problem. And then we can start really talking about solutions. It's very hard to talk about solutions when you react to the, to the tip of the iceberg thing that happens to, you know, jump up in the mass media, like the Cambridge Analytical story, gain a little attention for a few weeks, and then we move on, or, you know, over time people move on to the next thing. I want to go in a more kind of philosophical direction before we come back maybe to resolving the problems associated with tech, the technosocial dilemma so, you know, this whole conversation around the habituation and programming of behavior raises some obvious concerns to do with free will. So, so you know, somebody could come in and say, well, what, what you're saying is that the modern technosocial infrastructure is influencing and determining our behavior. But sure, cultural environments, social environments, natural environments have been determining our behavior for millennia. Uh, we are products of the environments in which we live. So, like, what's, what's different this time round. So this gets us into, I guess, the debate about free will. And one of the nice things about the book is you have an, a, an interesting chapter on free will, which you set up a, a, I think, a relatively original thought experiment. I, I don't think I've come across this way of framing the topic of, of free will before. I've you know, come across the idea of illusionism when it comes to free will. But you have this notion that uh, we should take the free will wager so maybe you could explain what you mean by that, um, and then we can go into the kind of debate about technology afterwards. Look, in, in, in its most fundamental form, I think the argument we're making goes something like this. You know, we take as a kind of guide Pascal's famous wager about whether we should believe in God or not. And, you know, Pascal famously comes to the conclusion that, you know, Given all of the potential consequences of believing or not believing, whether or not God exists, we're better off acting as if God does. And so one of the things we want to look at here is the question of if we're concerned that a variety of technological practices and some of the actors and institutions and companies behind them are gaining a certain amount of control over us, uh, to be concerned about that, you have to be concerned about some kind of harm or something that's being taken away or some sort of commitment that's being undermined. And that's what made us go back to some idea of free will. Obviously, free will is discussed in many different ways, and we, we discuss it in a very particular way. But going back to the wager, what we want to say is so much of our social, economic, and moral life is centered around both implicitly and explicitly versions of free will that in order to give up on the idea, um, there would either be tremendous amounts of losses uh, or you know, the people who believe that free will is an illusion and think, well, their job is done because they've identified the fallacy of free will, and now it's up to, you know, in, in incremental research, it's up to policy people to figure out what to do with it. We, we, we think that's a sort of cheat sheet promissory note, um, because that analysis never seems to be given. You have a few people, people like Greg Caruso, who have made very interesting arguments in the context of punishment. 
you know, Caruso's work tries to suggest we should think about punishment along the matter of a public health model of quarantine. And Caruso's work is really interesting. You know, we're, 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 you know, we would tip our hats to him and say, yeah, you know, as the sciences of the mind begin to advance, there may be uh, increasing amounts of information about human behavior that ought to be adjusted in light of that. But what's interesting is that's a very small niche you know, when you look at, I mean, it's an important, but it's a very small niche in terms of our overall social, economic, moral, et cetera, systems. And so part of our wager is it's a kind of pushing back against the convictions and um, beliefs that people have who are, you know, sort of uh, free will skeptics. It's a way of saying, can you really tell us that a world that would be designed otherwise we would be better off. Go back to contracts, you know, without the idea of some kind of a uh, a form of bargaining between people who have some sense of what's going on, some kind of a notion of free will, even, even contracts would fall apart. So part of what we're saying is if you're going to have to make a wager, you know, we don't live necessarily in the best of all worlds, but we've yet to see any compelling evidence from people who are pushing uh, the free will skepticism that implementations of world building that would follow from their ideas are, are, are in any way better than where we're at. In fact, very right. few people seem to even be trying to make that argument. So one way to, to, to state the wager is just should, you know, given our assumption that uh, it's impossible to, tr to prove whether free will exists or not, whether it's true or false. Just like it, Pascal made the similar, uh, you know, starting assumption with regard to God, with the existence of God, right? It, it's, it's improvable uh, whether it's true or false. And given that you, it's not a matter of fact, you know, empirical reality or something, instead, right, should we live our, should you as an individual live your life um, as if, uh, uh, free will exists. And so we, we extend it a little bit further and say, should you live your life? And the social question, should we order society as if free will exists or not? And then we set up what's sort of a, a two by two matrix and sort of talk about the error costs of being wrong and what it would mean to be right and what it would mean to have to shift from like, so our world currently that we live in, as Evan was just describing um, we most people live their lives as if free will exists, and most of modern civilization is built upon the foundations that free will exists in one form or another, legal, moral, and other uh, religious and other sort of moral intuitions about uh, responsibility, um, and you know things that are not just about responsibility, but also that enable us to collectively. Uh, continue to build the world that we live in much of what we've built and prior generations have sacrificed and built for us and that we are doing the same for future generations much of that is sort of contingent on you know ordering society as if free will exists and so uh as evan and i sort of describe in more detail in the book uh we think the um the cost of being wrong of ordering society as if free will doesn't exist when in fact it does would be tremendous and uh if in on, on the other on the other side 
Um, if free will doesn't exist, but we nonetheless continue to live our lives in order society as if it does exist, in other words, the illusion of, may, of free will, how we live our lives and how we order society, that that may be beneficial, right? Because of much of the benefits of modern society rest upon that um, uh, belief. Um, so whether it's illusory or not, we're better off proceeding, living our lives as if free will exists and ordering society. So, you know, working together and ordering society as if free will exists. And part of what's we think valuable among other things about, I mean, I think there's a variety of reasons why this wager is, is quite valuable. Um, one of the reasons we think it's valuable is it helps us to move beyond arguing about the existence or non-existence of free will or the truth or falsity of natural determinism so that we can instead focus on the form of determinism that we think puts much of what matters about being human at risk, which is what we call engineered determinism, which is the, the idea of building increasingly deterministic worlds um, uh, that determine more and more aspects of our lives um, uh, and leave less of self, less to self-determination um, than uh, is possible, right? So one of the great things about modern technology in the last couple centuries is that we've opened up the space for self-determination. There's much more opportunity and possibility and freedom for self-determination. Um, and so the one of the things Evan and I spent a lot of time talking about in the book is how uh, and this is where it connects a bit more, perhaps, with digital technology, although it's not sort of limited to that, um, is that a lot of the modern the sort of infatuation with building smart, supposedly smart techno-social systems that can manage, you know, can use data to manage more and more of our lives on our behalf. Um, and all you know, manage more of our lives and then scientifically manage more of what we do. Um, that uh, that contributes to an engineered form of determinism, as opposed to it being something that's natural. Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm less convinced that it it cuts through the philosophical debate, uh, but like uh, there's there's kind of so much going on there that I don't know if we could explore it fruitfully in the confines of this conversation. Just to say, like that the a lot of this depends on the kind of conception of free will that you're operating with, and I know you have an appendix on this. So I, like, I think the persuasiveness will depend significantly on that. And also then, I appreciate what Evan is saying, that the free will skeptic position is certainly a minority view, and a lot of the claims about the benefits of adopting that view are are speculative. But I do think that they do a reasonable job of pointing out the dark side to the cultural belief in free will, so you know Greg Russo's work around the dark side to punishment and social justice and inequality, but also Dirk Perbohm's work on you know the dark side to our relationships and uh, the way in which we approach others. That we free will skepticism undercuts the role of like resentment and indignation in our interpersonal relationships, and they can often have a or and jealousy, so they can often have a negative effect on our our relationships. So I just I do want to kind of set that to one side though to focus more on this engineered determinism idea. So I mean even even if you believe as if we behave as if we have free will, we can't deny that cultural technical forces influence our behavior in some way. Now you're trying to draw a distinction between engineered determinism which is bad and natural determinism or natural forms of influence which 
are less bad. But I don't know if that's actually a fruitful way of framing it. I think the way that I preferred in wait, the wait, book... But John, what, just to stop you, why do you... I, I guess the way that you just described what we're doing doesn't seem to me like what we're trying to do. So before we pivot onto why what you just said is, in your opinion, a problem, can you restate the claim that you think we're making? Because that version made it sound like something other than what we're saying. So, I mean, within that chapter on free will, it starts off with the free will wager, and we should behave as if we have free will. And then you focus on the downside of engineer determinism. That engineer determinism is a bad thing. But then you, you talk about other kind of forms of influence that are more acceptable, or, or we just accept natural forms of influence on behavior. That's what I didn't kind of understand about that chapter. Well, it's, it, it's almost like a Goldilocks problem, right? So we, we adopt, a, and I, I think you're 100% right, that how persuasive we are, both on the wager and in the whole chapter on this uh, topic, will we'll focus on our particular, very particular definition of free will which I think is compatible with what some people who, you know, the philosophers who study free will talk about, but it is particular. So we say free will is an agent's situated capability to engage in reflective self-determination about our will, uh, beliefs, desires, values, tastes, intentions, and so on. But it doesn't mean you have no conflicts, and it doesn't mean you have no absolute complete control over your will. And we even go so far as to sort of, we explain quite a bit how our will's not fully the product of continuous self-reflection or de determination because we only have so much time we have so only so much time so that the many of our beliefs and preferences and aspects of our will um we we sort of almost gain through experience but not through experience accompanied by self-reflection and determination self-reflection and determination occurs when uh it's salient to do so and so for us, free will is the capability to affirm or deny or adjust your beliefs or you know, aspects of your will upon reflection when it's salient to do so. And so for us, with that definition of free will in mind and with an understanding that so much, it's absolutely true that there is a substantial amount of our will that is, you know, that we sort of gain through, you might say it's naturally determined, I suppose. You might say that it's just, you know, it, it, is, it is naturally determined, um, uh, but it's subject to perhaps sort of revision through reflection if we have the, cap the relevant capability. Engineered determinism is a concern for us because it puts at risk, right, it's, it's the building of tech increasingly deterministic techno-social systems right, um, that uh, exert more and more control over, over aspects of our will and then at the same time reduce our capacity for self-reflection and determination. And so for us, it's, if we're building systems that put at risk the free will as we define it, meaning our situated capability, that I won't go, I won't kind of keep saying the same thing, but like that, that particular capability, then that's the thing we want to really focus attention on. And I, I hope that that helps clarify because I don't I, I don't think we're saying you know natural determinism is is good engineer determinism is bad 
um, and it's sort of just sort of trying to identify one or the other. It's that you know much much is naturally determined. Much of our lives is determined through engineered systems, part of the built world. I mean, the built world. I mean, the laws and institutions we have today. And in fact, this is what we talk about later in the book about human. You know, the ne- aspects of humanity that previous generations you know have cultivated and enable in through institutions and political commitments and other commitments um, have sort of helped helped establish who we are and who we're capable of being. Those things are determined through prior engine, you know, techno-social engineered systems. So techno-social engineering is not inherently good or bad. Um, it's, it's inevitable, some of it. The question is when it threatens uh, to push us over a line, when, when, it, when it threatens aspects of our humanity such that the capability we care about is at risk. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the problem for me here is that I just, and this might be my underlying kind of free will skepticism, creeping in like i just have no idea what it means to be self-determined what does that actually mean how do, how do, how do you engage in kind of deliberative self-determination do, do, i mean john do you believe you can form i mean do you believe in the distinction between first and second order preferences can you form preferences about your preferences yeah like i believe in that but i don't know if i mean who's doing the forming i believe there can be kind of a reflective reflection on preferences and this process can iterate but i don't know if i'm doing it if there's a self that's in control of the entire process i think i think who i am as a person is just heavily determined and influenced by my social context and my environment but let's play this out a little further and i'll just try to keep this on a very basic level and see if we 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 disagree on this so if you believe there's a distinction between first, first and second order preferences and we can reflect on what our preferences are and, and ask ourselves the question of whether things that we currently prefer and the behaviors that we exhibit that demonstrate uh, the existence of those preferences uh, actually meet with higher level preferences that we at least like to believe we hold and we're committed to, then in some way, regardless of the question of how the original or the higher order preferences were formed, through that form of reflection, we can always ask ourselves, we might not always be great at answering it, there are plenty of blind spots, but we can always ask ourselves, am I living in ways, am I acting in ways that embody preferences that when I examine them compared to the preferences that I like to believe that I hold, uh, if the preferences that I like to believe that I hold are preferences that would help me flourish, for example, and the preferences that I currently am acting upon deviate from those, and so there is a dissonance and disparity between what I aspire to, preferentially speaking, and the preferences that I hold, you can begin to examine how are the preferences that I do hold, how are they formed, and who's benefiting from their formation? And recognizing the difference between those two, at least to us, unless I'm describing this in a way you disagree with, Brett, seems to really be sort of essential to who we are as as agents and human beings. Yeah, but so there's a couple of things here. Um, I mean, one thing that I, I I think we probably agree more than we disagree. So, and that was what I was going to get to. That I like one way in which you frame the problem has to do with. You use Keith Stanovich's example of long leash determinism versus short leash mm-hmm. determinism, and like that resonates with me uh, quite a bit. 
Um, but okay, so I, I think you can have a wholly determined system that's incapable of engaging this, these higher order forms of reflection and deliberation, and so that you can establish some kind of concept of a self that benefits from actions over a longer period of time, uh, co sort of coherent life narrative, or something like that. Um, but as, and this goes, I think, really to the heart of the value proposition or assumption that underlies the entire book, which is, why do we, why do we valorize that kind of conception of the self or conception of self-determination? Like, why is that more valuable than other things? Such as just, like, fleeting pleasure or individual pleasure. Uh, sorry, short-term pleasure. I'll have Brett give the long-term answer to this, but I, I just want to jump in and talk about the way that you're framing this, um, because I, I don't think we're actually saying that. So as, as my intention as an author, I can speak to that. Now, whether it came out differently to you as a reader, that, that would be interesting. Brett and I weren't attempting to lay out fully substantive values or substantive characteristics or substantive processes and elevate them on a normative scale and say that these are inherently better than those, some contrary class, right? You're talking about fleeting pleasure was an example that you gave. Um, we recognize people are going to have different values and they're going to have different preferences. In fact, the very notion of what counts as a good life is, is sort of inherently contested. What we want to show is if you're committed to a certain set of values, then you might find it alarming if the world is being designed in a way, we try to at least uh, explain how uh, the world through technology or technosocial systems is being designed, you might be concerned about some of those values being endangered in particular environments. And if you don't care about those values, let's say, let's say you're a full-blown hedonist and are like, you know, deliber deliberation doesn't really matter to me and, and my set of values I have this this alternative conception, you might be committed to that alternative set of values, but out of a basic respect for, say, uh, liberal pluralism, you might say, but I don't want a world to be created that paternalistically forces other people to have the same values as me. And I might not value deliberation, but if I recognize that a world is being created where fewer environments allow us to be deliberative or the strength of certain environments that prevent deliberation are having spillover effects to other environments, and that would prevent other people from living the kinds of lives that they value as important, then uh, the arguments that we're making should appeal to that person as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the kind of liberal pluralistic angle on this is compelling when it because you know so much of the book is about this being a collective action problem and a social problem, not just something that uh, is about individual decision making and the individual context. So like that that resonates with me. But I guess this is sort of just revealing a deeper tension within my own views. So you know, I want to believe that deliberation and self determination and agency are valuable things, but I, I struggle to see what, like, how compelling the foundation for believing that they are valuable is. Uh, John, could, just uh, take the wager, baby. Well, I, like, I can see why hedonism. Like, <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to be funny. It, hedonism makes sense to me because, I could, you know, pain and pleasure. It seems to me that they're 
intrinsically valuable or disvaluable, it, it's very hard for me to imagine any reason to discount but, or disbelieve yeah, that. He, but even that, John, that, and, and I, I think maybe this will really help clarify the way that we're trying to write the book. Um, we are not writing a book whose subtitle could be called Against Hedonism of any variety, right? We are not being so paternalistic that we are from our own set of values or from sets of values of people that we happen to contingently admire saying these are the best of all possible values or these are comparatively better than other values. What we're articulating are sets of values and characteristics that in, you know, various traditions have been elevated. And we're pointing out ways in which the world is being techno-socially engineered that may prevent in certain environments those values or characteristics uh, from fully expressing themselves or from expanding and growing or maybe from possibly even existing at a very high level. And what we're trying to get the reader to sort of feel as, as a real burning question is, even if you think that the justification for some of these values that we point out that people have held to be important and have held out to be important over time, even if you think, for example, some of these values are contingent enlightenment values that only came about at a particular notion of time and haven't really stood up to the kind of critical scrutiny uh, that they've been subjected to ever since. Even if you believe in all that, even if you think we we should be living in some version of an experience machine, you know, we, we talk about the traditional thought experiment and an updated version. And we even give an example where, where Peter Singer says, you know, uh, some version of an experience machine might, based on his utilitarian commitments, be the best of all possible worlds. We hope to at least make the pluralist argument that there should at least be enough intellectual humility where even if you're committed to that, even if you're a good, you know, libertarian who thinks that, um, you know, uh, so much of these claims about technology are nostalgic and reactionary, there should still be enough commitment to pluralism where you would want there to be spaces for these other values to grow and flourish. Yeah, I mean, that, so that that's fair enough. And I like you know, the intentions behind the book and the purpose of the book are one thing. I I suppose I was just trying to go at a deeper level as to what, like, why should I be committed to agency and self determination? And I'm I'm just not sure, like, what the well, I think most persuasive argument is. Good, yeah. okay, Brett. We don't we don't try to tell the reader. So so there's a couple things going on right in the book. One is we're not trying to tell the reader what the good life for them ought to be. You can be a pure, hardcore hedonist, and that's all right. You know what the good life is for you, and you should live your life how you want to live your life. Okay. Um, but that doesn't answer the question of uh, the world-building question, right? What kind of world are we building? What kind of commitments do we have? It's in that sense that I think we try to offer, through the experience machine extension. We call it Experience Machine N.0, which is a distributed version of the Experience Machine. So it's not something that you or I or anyone else can plug into and sort of force ourselves to confront what matters about, you know, what what is a good life for me? Uh, but it's instead, should we build a world which is uh, a, a smart techno-social system that encompasses the world that is optimized for human happiness, supplying everyone on earth with as much happiness as, as possible. And we can assume that technology is smart enough that it can kind of get that right. 
is that a world to build that we should build? And that that latter sort of discussion is about framing what Evan was getting at earlier, which is, which is our discussion with Peter Singer and sort of, you know, even if you're a hardcore hedonist, you might not all, you might not say, uh, agree to build that world if given that choice, because you wouldn't necessarily want to commit all the non-hedonists to your value system. I mean, just one um, thing I would say here is that I think you can kind of adopt the same kind of argument in a different direction. So from, from somebody who values can maybe self-determination and long-term goal setting and uh, capacity building, somebody who's overly committed to that, that can have negative implications for people who are more committed to hedonistic value. So like I've written a little bit about this recently in my some of the stuff I've written about critiquing the work ethic and the emphasis it places on constantly delaying gratification to the future in the desire to kind of pursue Yep. higher employment and so forth. So like, I think that has a negative cost for society as well. That's a form of techno-social engineering that has a negative cost for society because it reduces our ability to ex- to experience pleasures in the moment or to be satisfied with our current lot in life or, or, or satisfied with what the current situation is, that we're always lo- longing for a better future. I think that's a kind of a problematic form of techno-social engineering as well. Okay, um, I think I would like to maybe draw a close to this conversation because we've gone a bit long um, and we've touched on the experience machine stuff already, but maybe just take a couple of minutes to the the solutions that you have at the end of the book. So you advocate in response to the techno-social dilemma and the potential costs to our agency and self-determination, um, you propose two new freedoms. So maybe you could describe what those two freedoms are and um, why they're I, worth I taking wanna, seriously. Yeah. I, I know we're running out. I just want to say one quick thing, John, and then maybe, Brett, you'll, you'll take a stab at the two new freedoms. Just, just on this last point, just because I think it's a really evocative image we have in the book, and I think it might be a good way for people who are listening to this to sort of visualize even what we're talking about. Um, when we talk about being human, one of the images that we give is a... Um, the image of selecting characteristics for a player in some sort of a role-playing game, right? Where you could imagine a whole bunch of different attributes, you know, strength, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, you name it. Some version of that template exists in almost all role-playing games. When we see uh, science fiction like Westworld now that talks about building AI that's like human beings, they, they actually use that exact same sort of structure. And I guess part of one way to look at what we're saying is there are different ways to organize those characteristics. You could prioritize certain things, and if there's a limited amount of points to go around, that's going to produce uh, constraints on other characteristics. The pluralistic concern that we have is perhaps one of the ways the world is being built is that it keeps you, you, you will be coercively inserted into the world with one set of those characteristics without the opportunity to choose other kinds of characters. I just wanted to throw that in in case that sort of helps crystallize some of what we've just been talking about. Yeah, no, I think that kind of, that's a, a very useful visual metaphor for thinking about the, the framework that you're setting up within the book. Yeah. Uh, Brett, do you want to talk the, about the two freedoms that you advocate yeah, for at the end so of the book? I, even before I jump to the freedoms, I think I, I will. I'll get there in just a second. Let me just open by saying in terms of like solutions that we <laughs> the first thing we do before we even raise these two freedoms is we just we we recognize that uh 
There's no easy solution. There's no silver bullet. There's not one. Even these two freedoms I'm going to mention in just a second are not solutions in and of themselves that will will deal with it. We've the the problems we've described in, in uh, the tragedy of the commons is sort of almost itself too simple. They occur on multiple levels. They occur on different scales. They span different contexts, and so you're going to. We're, we're going to need to think through both the problems and possible solutions at different levels across different timescales. You know, it, so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's a more systematic approach to, 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 to world building and solving these problems um, than is often acknowledged in a book. So often a book like this will close with like a bunch of like, like, and here's how you solve it. And it'll be some simple set of things that are completely unrealistic and that are never going to happen. Um, but even if they did happen, won't actually deal with the, the bigger large scale problem. And so we just want to be upfront that what we offer at the end, what a conclusion that turns into a, a, a very lengthy chapter um, is a set of illustrative sort of examples of, of the kinds of things we could we could do um, to start mitigating the problem and sort of uh, and thinking about the techno social you know solutions to the humanities techno social dilemma um, at different levels and scales so the first thing we suggest is this this call for freedom uh, which has two different ideals um, and they both they're sort of a mix each ideal itself has sort of positive and negative liberties so they're like they're both freedoms from and freedoms to is one another way to sort of think about it so maybe I should just say what they are because so that the reader the audience sort of uh, will catch them the first is a freedom from programming conditioning and and control engineered by others and so in our and of course, this is a long-standing sort of ideal. Uh, it's not sort of completely new. So in, in our modern techno-social world, Evan and I call this the freedom to be off. And you just think about how much of your lives uh, you're always on, right? You're always on through the, whether it's the smartphone in your, in your pocket or you're sitting at your desk and you feel like you're going to constantly be part, uh, checking in on your social media or whatnot. Uh, but it's the, this freedom to be off. Uh, the second is freedom of, of will and practical agency. That's the, sort of the positive version. And in our modern techno-social world, we call this the freedom from engineered determinism. And what we're, we're basically struggling, you know, what we're not struggling with, what we're trying to describe in, the, in this, in this uh, with, through these two ideals um, is sort of breathing room uh, space, degrees of freedom that are engineered into our lived-in environments, and so therefore our lives. And so there's an interesting kind of irony, right? Because we're the books about techno-social engineering and the concerns with engineered determinism, and yet what we're saying is we need to have tech. We need to use techno-social engineering to create uh, freedom, to create underdetermined environments. Uh, we need, you know, space for us to sort of experiment with and sort of, again, engage in self-determination when it's salient or uh, when we have reason to do so. Um, and so that's the, uh, I can go on about this, but maybe I'll just sort of pause and sort of see if you have questions or if Evan wants to jump in. Yeah. Is it okay, John, if I just say like maybe two quick things? Sure. Yeah. The, the, this, the first one, this idea of freedom to be off, I just want to make sure it's, it's understood. Um, we're not saying that if we, 
if there is space created for people to be free of the online programming, and by online programming, we don't even just mean the internet. I mean, a lot of the book talks about the smart world of the internet of things and the world of the internet of everything, as it's you know also called. Building in spaces where, where you can be off of that doesn't mean you're going from a highly programmed world to an unprogrammed world. I mean, we're, we're not drawing a naive contrast class. Of course, even if you weren't, you know, being observed in those systems and being sliced and diced and analyzed and having the data collected and being nudged, there's all kinds of, I mean, as sociology and anthropology of long, you know, sort of taught us, there's all kinds of influences. But if you don't even have the capacity to sort of leave a particular environment and think about the influences that are going on in that environment from some other space, you know, Julie Cohen calls it breathing room. There's all kinds of metaphors you can use for it, but some other kind of space to really interrogate how the kinds of preferences and desires and beliefs that you have are being um, promoted in that environment, then, then, then something has happened in the world where it's being built in such a way that we can't fully interrogate the values that are being built into that. And that leads to the second point that Brett was pointing out. You know, uh, I, I'll say this in a slightly academically peeved way. Um, you know, so many people, you know, Brett and I have sort of joked about this amongst ourselves. We call it like the, the, the hashtag Haraway objection is people are like, why are you even talking about being human? Like, didn't Donna Haraway back in the 80s teach us that we're all cyborgs and we don't need to, you know, being human is just this completely outdated, archaic thing filled with all of these idealized essentialisms and so on. And, you know, the solutions that we're proposing, as we point out in the book, these are very, if you will, cyborgian solutions if you think of the world in what Haraway really meant by cyborgs. But I... I Based on the values and concerns that we have, a large part of the book is like, but we shouldn't give up on the idea of talking about being human. Like, there's too much to give up simply by saying something like, the human is, is passe. If we give up on talking about being human, we can't even talk about all of the things that are being techno-socially engineered. We can't talk about how our imaginations both, you know, uh, our capacities to imagine certain kinds of futures and even our ethical imaginations, the ways that we perceive things, how cognition gets organized and distributed, you know, all of these fundamental attributes, you lose the basis of being able to really talk about what's being engineered without something like the conception of being human. So I'm just reemphasizing that as we think about solutions to the built environment, we're not naively separating you know, who we are from the technology. We recognize that the changes have to come from alterations in the lived environment, but there is often a kind of knee-jerk dismissiveness of thinking about these things as uh, ways of talking about promoting certain types of human being in the world or human flourishing. Let, let me give you an example, John, if this is, uh, would be helpful. Uh, Evan, exactly right. It's not freedom to be off does not mean you've got to go hide in the woods with no technology around or something. Um, and so some of the things we discuss is just examples um, where what it would mean to have some freedom to be off that would sort of implement these principles through more sort of fine-grained things. Like you can think about things like, and I wrote about this back in, in my infrastructure book uh, from 2012 when I talked about net neutrality. Like network neutrality has always, for me, 
been about a non-discrimination rule where you can't dis- network owners can't discriminate based on the identity of the user or use. In other words, who's doing what, right? So you can't sort of prioritize traffic or, or price uh, access and uh, the uh, services based on who's doing what online. There's other re- ways you can differentiate, but that basic, you can't, dis- you can't, differentiate price, you know, discriminate based on who's doing what creates a underdetermined techno-social environment online where people can determine for themselves what to do, where their actions and behaviors aren't shaped or optimized by the broadband internet access service provider. And so I, I won't go into this in detail, it's discussed in the book, but the idea is even things like net neutrality rules or open internet rules or it doesn't say get off the internet. It's you're still on the technology. You're, but the the degree of freedom to be off is you're you're free from the uh, conditioning, programming, optimization algorithms, personalization algorithms of the uh, infra the technology provider, the tech uh, the infrastructure provider. Yeah, I mean, I did a previous podcast with one of your um, co-authors before Woodrow Hartzog on the value of inefficiency. So I think these are similar ideas that are being raised in a slightly different context here. Um, I think, though, we'll have to draw a conclusion to the conversation because I have to go. Um, I, I need some freedom to be offline for a while, <laughs> to, to, di- to disengage and go and live in the woods. Um, it's, it's a beautiful, warm day here. So we only get a couple of these in, in Ireland every year. So it's uh, important to take advantage of it. Um, but apart from that, I'd like thanks very much for the the discussion i would emphasize to everyone listening to this that we despite the length of this conversation we've only kind of scratched the surface of the material in the book it is really a a kind of rich and detailed inquiry into all the different forms of techno-social engineering or the most salient forms of techno-social engineering in the modern world and the consequences of what this means to be human and it's full of rich thought experiments which uh, um, i encourage everybody to to read and pick up a copy. And also for an academic book with an academic press, it is uh, fairly reasonably priced as well, from what I recall. So um, well worth uh, getting your hands on a copy. Okay, so uh, thanks for joining me. And um, otherwise, I think, yeah, we'll just we'll leave it there. All thanks right. So well, much, th- thanks for having us on. Yeah.